Greetings, Rays community. Brent, coming in live from Walla Walla, Washington, as my family and I continue our RV journey around the country. I've found out it's not called RV homeschooling. It's called road schooling. So that's what we're doing this fall, but it is not going to stop us from having great conversations with wonderful leaders in the advancement sector, including Megan Dowd, who joins us today as the Assistant Vice President of Strategic Resource Development at University of Michigan. I will note that Megan also participated in the Dolphin Show as an undergrad at Northwestern University. So Megan, welcome to the Rays Podcast. Thank you, Brent. I'm happy to be here today. All right. Tell us about your journey to Northwestern and your leadership or participation in the Dolphin Show and why everybody should know what that is. Sure. So uh, my journey to Northwestern, I actually grew up in Colorado. Uh, so I am a Western girl at heart, but I found my way to the Midwest when I visited Northwestern and I fell in love with the campus. Um, I had never seen a lake that was anywhere near as large as Lake Michigan. And Northwestern is such a beautiful campus right there along the shoreline. Uh, it was just breathtaking. And it really pulled me to the Midwest and to Chicago. Um, I loved my four years at Northwestern and got very involved in student theater. So the Dolphin Show is certainly how that comes in. The Dolphin Show is actually the nation's largest student-produced musical. Um, and it is, it's just an incredible experience. There's over 100 students typically involved in any given year. Um, I did it all four years that I was at Northwestern. And my senior year, I served as um, a co-producer with one of my very best friends. We are still friends to this day. Um, she wasn't my friend, interestingly, before we co-produced. We barely knew each other, um, but that really instilled, uh, instilled a lifelong friendship. So, uh, and it exposed me to all sorts of aspects of theater production and coordinating lots of people and lots of moving parts uh, and managing a big show, which is kind of what we do every day here in development too. So what are the highlights from your time in theater or the Dolphin Show specifically? And I actually think it's remarkable that you co-produced the show and became friends instead of enemies. That's, that's a testament to both of you. Yeah, so uh, lots of highlights with the Dolphin Show. But I think, um, I mean, anyone who's done theater says can probably identify with this. There's nothing like an opening night. Uh, you put so much work into bringing a show together and the Dolphin Show really is almost a year long production. Um, I think my friend and I were selected as producers in probably March of one year and the show opened January of the following year. So everything from show selection, director selection, hiring designers, casting the show, and then obviously all of the rehearsals and production planning and work that goes into it. Um, and it goes up uh, in the largest performance venue on Northwestern's campus, which uh, Khan Auditorium, it seats, I can't remember exactly how many, but probably 1,500 or 2,000 people. Um, and there's nothing like an opening night for something that you have literally created from the ground up. Um, and watching that curtain rise and hearing an audience respond to a show is just a phenomenal memory. So, And so you studied, you studied econ but you also had the artistic uh, theater aspect of your student experience. And it looks like it is the, the theater work that led you into your first foray in this world of nonprofit uh, development. And I'd love to just know a little bit more about as you were graduating, it was um, the early 2000s, we're probably coming out of the dot-com boom, but not totally out of it. What was that sort of transition from this incredible what sounds like an incredible student experience where you're 
leading and building relationships and, um, and then going out and, and getting that first job? Sure, absolutely. So um, much to my parents' dismay, when I graduated, I decided I didn't want to go into the economics field, um, which actually made a lot of sense at the time. As you mentioned, it was the early 2000s. Because um, of- everybody knows theater pays way better than econ. Right, exactly. It made perfect sense, Brent. <laughs> um, but in all honesty, a lot of my friends uh, in econ had lined up really great jobs with some of the big firm, you know, Anderson or other big companies. Um, and then those jobs disappeared before our graduation day. So I like to say that I just had that foresight and um, brilliance or something to know that I should go the theater route instead. So um, in all reality, I think it was following my passion. I love the arts. I love working with artists. And I loved the fact that I could bring my organizational mind and my kind of structure to help them create amazingly beautiful and emotional pieces of art. So, uh, so I started doing freelance work. I, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a gig to gig economy. And I was a production manager and a stage manager in the Chicagoland area, um, went show to show worked at Northwestern for an interim time, um, and then found my way to a summer stock theater up in Wisconsin. Uh, the, the real truth to that story is that I followed a boy there that I liked, who is now my husband of 13 years, so it was worth it. <laughs> um, but I, I went up to the summer theater and was working there for a summer when they decided that they wanted to launch a capital campaign to rebuild their theater facility as well as some of the surrounding buildings. Uh, and They had never embarked on something like that. The theater had been around for about 70 years, uh, and so it was old. And they hired a consulting firm out of of Chicago to help them think about whether a campaign was going to be feasible or not. And I happened to be there hanging out and got tapped to start scheduling interviews with donors and and really um, kind of put the pieces into place for a feasibility study, which eventually led to a full-time job. You're in Fish Creek, Wisconsin, which I believe is yes. in Door County. It which is, is an absolutely. amazing area. If you haven't been to northern Wisconsin in the summer, it's incredible. Winter, eh, you know, if you like ice fishing, it's okay. Um, but, but tell me a little bit, because I think like feasibility study is one of those words that you go your whole life never hearing, and then you join the advancement sector, the nonprofit fundraising sector, and it becomes like one of those just vocab words that everybody says, wait, what is that? You have to learn what that is. And so just tell me a little bit about for a small theater in Door County, Wisconsin, versus a feasibility study at the University of Michigan, where you are now, is it the same? Is it different? I mean, what was your initial, I don't know, impression of what that word even meant as you got exposed to the sector? Yeah, I mean, at the core of it, I actually think it's very much the same. Uh, I kind of, I like to joke, especially with my family, that I've just added more zeros um, after the numbers throughout my development career. Um, but it really, the, the core of the work is the same, no matter how much money you're trying to raise. And so uh, my initial impression was very much just kind of this like, oh, we need to talk to season ticket holders and we need to call some of our donors and see if they would be willing to give bigger amounts of money, right? <laughs> We're just kind of trying to get a sense of, of what the community has an appetite for and, and what we can do. Um, and that's very much still the same at Michigan before we embark and, and on so a large campaign. Did you actually facilitate, did you, were you helping coordinate the conversations? Were you conducting the conversations? 
so initially I was just helping to coordinate and schedule the conversations. Our consultants were actually coming up and having the conversations. And then when they submitted all of the kind of data and notes and all of that, I compiled it into helped to compile it into um, kind of a structured report. Then I Got went it. home and thought I was done. That's part of the story. I went away and thought I was finished with the theater uh, for the year at least. And it was probably three or four months later, it was December that they said, how do you feel about coming up to Fish Creek and working for us full time? So um, talk about ice fishing. <laughs> I was like, I don't know that I wanna come up to Fish Creek in December um, and take this job, but, but it actually, it turned out to be an incredible experience. I got the biggest crash course in development that I could have imagined. Um, working in a small nonprofit like that. So, so I've, I've never uh, been a part of a feasibility study properly. It's not work that we do at Evertrue. Um, so what is it like when you go from the compiled consultant notes to the actual human being on the other side of the table? And I guess, what did you find most helpful about a feasibility study? And were there any elements or, or examples where the actual reality of the donor relationship was, was radically different than maybe what the feasibility study might have suggested. And I know we're going way back in time, so it doesn't have to be specifically, you know, dusting off your notes from Fish Creek, but I, but I am curious to know what that was like. Yeah, so I think the biggest things, I mean, obviously at the core of it was knowing that we should even move forward. Um, even my getting hired was kind of a result of that feasibility study and the theater having some level of comfort that they could raise the money, they should move forward. It was worth investing in a full-time development staff member to try to do this campaign. Um, so that's kind of the, the top level value, right? Then beyond that, um, certainly knowing the sentiment in the community and especially thinking about how it informed our messaging was, was highly important and thinking and knowing sort of how we had to frame the conversation and how we needed to frame the case statement to get the most support out of the community. Um, and then Can you it be was more specific. Like, I'm really curious to know how, like how is sentiment derived or, or, or what insight did you kind of, um, did you feel was, was garnered from that work that then actually did change the way that you went about the, the fundraising aspects? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things or one of the things that stands out in my mind, I should say, is that it was really helpful in kind of pointing out to us that we were going to be in direct competition for philanthropic dollars with a new cancer center for the Door County area. Um, and, and how important that was <laughs> became very clear through the feasibility study and the fact that there was sort of the sentiment from some people in the community that a cancer center literally is saving lives. What is a theater doing? Like, do we really need the theater as much as we need the cancer center? And if I'm going to be making a judgment call about where to give my money over the course of the next, say, five years, um, doesn't the cancer center seem like a more important cause? Uh, and so that really helped us think about uh, how do we make the case for how, how and why the theater is as integral a part of the Door County community and the kind of lifeblood of a, of a community as a literal healthcare life or death type of um, ask. Uh, and, and really, I mean, anyone who's been up in Door County knows it is an artist uh, area. 
it, it thrives on, you know, it's art, pottery and theater and music, and it is, it is a very arts heavy area. Um, so drawing back on people's kind of connection to that identity was really important for us. Um, and also the tradition. And I can't tell you how many donor conversations I went into then where my first question was, tell me about the first time that you saw a show at Peninsula Players Theater. Um, and I would get these incredible stories from people about how they went when they were six years old with their grandmother and remember exactly what they saw and having a, you know, having a dinner picnic by the shoreline and all of that. And putting people into that space made our conversation so much more successful um, as opposed to just going in and saying the theater building's old and you know we need to raise money to replace it and here's why uh, it really uh, just just made the asks a lot more effective I love it I mean that's one of the interesting things about philanthropy is it is the ultimate discretionary purchase if you will and the price point is literally uncapped you could you can uh, go to any retailer on Main Street and what you're going to spend is pretty much governed by what they have. And, and that's not the case with philanthropy. But I love that you brought up this idea of competition because we're obviously in a collaborative sector. And I think with, within higher ed in particular, everybody's so willing to share and, you know, Northwestern doesn't compete with Iowa or Duke or whomever for donors. And so we all, um, you know, collaborate and share openly, but it doesn't mean that we're not really intensely competing for those philanthropic dollars. And I think sometimes that isn't talked about enough. And, you know, honestly, I could see you even asking yourself, like, is the theater really as important as literally saving lives? Or how do you start to even think about relative investment levels in, in various nonprofit verticals? And I guess I wonder, you know, as you think about the higher ed world that you're now in, you know, clearly University of Michigan alumni are considering other philanthropic gifts and how do you balance wanting to uh, garner as much of that support as possible for Michigan to make the impact that you believe in at Michigan, recognizing that sometimes that will come at the expense, not that it's totally zero sum, but sometimes people have to make a choice. Where am I going to put my money? And I guess, how do you feel about that competition that is underlying what is obviously a very mission and feel good type sector? Yeah, I think it's a really important thing for us to remember uh, all the time. I actually think it's it's somewhat where my econ degree maybe comes into play um, or my MBA. Um, but remembering that we are competing for, for share of wallet at the end of the day. Um, and it could be philanthropic wallet share. It also could just be wallet share. Um, and so as we think about our work and and how we need to be reaching out to donors, what level of kind of service, if you will, we need to be providing to our donors. I think it's really important to remember that they are having interactions with lots of other nonprofits, with lots of other companies and corporations um, that is informing their expectations and their, their kind of equal judgment, I guess, or their, their assessment of how we are performing in comparative to everyone else that they're interacting with. Um, so I think it's a really important thing to keep in mind in everything that we do, to be honest. So let's fast forward. You're in the trenches. You get roped in to help lead the, the Fish Creek uh, Theater renovation project. It sounds like that was successful. And at that point, you're now at this intersection of philanthropy and theater, and you decide to go down the philanthropy path. And what was it like? You 
uh, you made the move to, to Ann Arbor, and that's quite a different context than Door County. Yeah, so great question. I actually made one little pit stop between uh, Door County and Ann Arbor. So I spent uh, a short time at the in the annual giving department at Northwestern, which is my alma mater in Evanston. Um, and really, I made the move to higher ed fundraising because uh, I wanted to be able to specialize more. I loved my experience at the theater. I got this crash course in development, but I was doing all of it, right? I was doing capital campaign, annual giving, volunteer management, major gift work, stewardship. Uh, and I and I felt like I wasn't getting really good at any of it um, because I was just kind of teaching myself and, you know, with a little bit of help from consultants. So I said, well, I want to go somewhere where I can really learn from development professionals and I can really hone this expertise. Uh, and of course, what better place to go than higher ed, right? <laughs> so um, that's what that's what brought me into the higher ed fundraising space. And at the time, I made the decision that I wanted to really focus on annual giving uh, because I loved the intersection of data and analytics with creativity and messaging. So that is what took me to Northwestern and the role in annual giving there. Uh, then fast forward a couple years. Uh, we relocated to Michigan so my husband could attend grad school here at U of M. Uh, he's an Ann Arbor born and raised uh, person. So he had that block M just like a beacon uh, beckoning, beckoning him back here. Uh, so I was thrilled to move into the annual giving department here at the University of Michigan and get a whole nother level of development education uh, in a large public institution, which has its unique challenges and pros and cons compared to a kind of mid-sized private higher ed institution. I mean, let's be honest, Michigan fundraising is a beast. Is it okay to say that? I mean, it is just a massive organization and uh, the impact and the scale is, you know, really, just in, in a, in a, in a upper echelon that you don't see anywhere in the world. And on one hand, that's got to be really excited, but, or exciting to be a part of, but how do you even navigate it? I mean, what's it like going from Jack of all trades, small theater to, I, I mean, what's the staff size at Michigan right now? Development staff. <laughs> so across campus, it's probably about 550 right now. Um, somewhere between 550 and 600. Uh, and I'm in the Office of University Development, which is sort of our uh, university-wide office, if you will, and it's just under 200 in our office. Um, so yes, it's a very different scale and size, uh, certainly than Peninsula Players was, and honestly, more or larger than most higher ed institutions. Um, and it is incredibly decentralized. And when I interviewed for the job at Michigan, I remember everyone saying to me, uh, it's very decentralized. Just know that this is a very decentralized organization. And I thought, I, I've worked in decentralized places. Like, I can understand that. <laughs> Nothing prepares you for the decentralization um, that is U of M, aside from maybe a few other very large public institutions that are our peers that I talk to all the time and commiserate with. Um, but it does, it takes a whole nother level of navigation um, and a lot of time thinking about coordination and partnering with peers across campus, uh, in addition to the kind of traditional development work. One of the things I love about it, back to your question around competition, is that pretty much anything a donor could 
or would want to support, we actually have a fund for here at Michigan. Um, whether it's healthcare, whether it's climate change, whether it's you know animal rights, whether it's the arts, like it, pretty much anything, um, you can find something here for them to support. So I love that because I find that it steers conversations and even just our thinking, um, not necessarily away from Michigan, but just to a different part of Michigan if we start to hear donors' interests emerge. What's it like, even as a, as a staff member, how, how do you, I mean, I feel like, how do you even know how a donor could support Michigan? I mean, there are so many funds and interest areas. I mean, is there an onboarding process? Do you just got to pick it up as you go? I mean, like just, it's, it's kind of like when somebody joins a new, like I work in the tech sector, right? So if somebody joins your company, hey, we're going to introduce you to our products. These are the products that we offer. Here's when it might make sense for this product versus that product. But we have like, you know, a few different products, right? You have potentially hundreds of products to offer. I don't know. I mean, I guess you're just inherently a mile wide, an inch deep, or maybe that's why decentralization and focus uh, is important at a place like Michigan. Yeah, I think, I think I'd say yes to all of that. Um, I mean, I've been at Michigan, it'll be 12 years here in a couple of weeks, and there are still, you know, with reg fair regularity times that I'm like, oh, there's a center for that? Good to know. Or a new institute, or, and part of that's the nature of higher ed that's always changing and new programs are coming out. Um, part of it is just the breadth and scope of a place like Michigan. It takes a really long time to learn. Um, that being said, I think that that is part of what really works about the decentralized structure here is that you have, we have a sizable staff in the, the kind of central office, if you will, um, that has broad knowledge of all of it, but then the expertise really sits out in the schools and colleges. So you don't need to know about every program, you need to know who to bring into the conversation um, when you start to go down a certain path. So, so that I think is, is part of what really works. Um, and then it Can you walk me through like what that actually is like? Like, I don't know, let's pretend that I'm the donor and I went to the business school, but I have expressed a real um, interest in first gen access. Let's just say that's something that I care a lot about. So you're like, like let's say you're my fundraiser, you're, you're my major gift officer. Um, how do you know where to go to even make a connection? Because odds are in a staff of 550 people, the person that I need to talk to as the donor that you want to engage, you as the fundraiser have maybe never even met them. And so that's, got, I mean, are you just constantly being brought into conversations where you're getting to know fellow colleagues with the donor sort of at the center? Or how do you, I don't know, how do you approach that? Yeah, so a couple of things. I would say one of the things that we take um, very seriously in the Office of University Development is helping to build that development community. So we do have regular meetings um, with everybody in the development community, and we have a lot of different areas. Like my annual giving team leads these annual giving uh, officer meetings on a quarterly basis, which is just the people working on annual giving. There's major gift officer roundtable discussions that happen frequently. There's there's all these different sort of opportunities to connect with the colleagues who are working in a similar space. Same type of thing for stewardship, planned giving, you know, kind of you name it. So you do get to know uh, people who are working within the same 
at least kind of functional area of development. Uh, and then it's also part of the role that, that the Office of University Development plays is helping to be the connector. So we also have regional gift officers. Um, and oftentimes, if in your example, the, the Ross Business School gift officer hears in a conversation that Brent's really interested in access to first gen, first of all, maybe there's a program within the Ross School of Business that's a good fit. And if not, then they'll either know who to go to in the Office of Financial Aid, or they'll kind of come to their regional gift officer and say, here, there's this person who's interested in this. Uh, would it be good for you to have a conversation with them? Or is there someone else on campus that you can recommend they connect with? Um, so that's how that sort of plays out, if that makes sense. Totally, and uh, I can see why the coordination orchestration in a theater context could come in handy uh, as you are navigating uh, that, that dynamic. I'm curious, along the way, you did pursue your MBA at Ross at Michigan, which is one of the top schools in the country. What was that experience like? I imagine there weren't a lot of people in your program that were working in the philanthropic giving space. So I'm sure that, that made uh, both for an eye-opening experience for you, but I bet you added some pretty interesting perspective uh, in some of those discussions? Um, I would hope so. I, I would say for me, it was an incredible experience. I, I So I did my MBA part-time while I was still working here at Michigan. Um, and I loved, I absolutely loved doing that way because my cohort, we, we didn't really have a cohort, so to speak, but the people in my classes were also largely full-time working professionals. Um, and I think that the kind of hands-on learning that we got that way was so incredibly valuable, uh, hopefully for all of us. Certainly, I know for me, uh, it was fascinating to hear the different perspectives and kind of work cultures out there. Obviously, we're here in Ann Arbor, kind of metro Detroit area, um, a lot of classmates who work for the big three auto companies. So I learned a lot about the auto industry that I did not really know or understand before. A lot of auto suppliers as well, which is a whole nother massive network, obviously. Um, and then classmates who worked for DT Energy or for Whirlpool or Stryker Medical, like all of these different industries. And then a few like me who maybe worked in higher ed or other uh, nonprofit sectors, very few, but there were a couple of us. Um, but I think that that diversity of thought made all of our classroom conversations a lot richer. Uh, and it was interesting to see and hear how we would take information in, but then apply it very differently in our different settings. Um, and certainly in the development world, I mean, all of my classes, I actually think were very valuable for my work, but things like marketing uh, were really interesting to be learning from more of a product marketing standpoint often, and then thinking about how do we take that and convert it into um, this intangible thing that we market, right, this cause that we market in development. Um, and then doing that alongside with people who were marketing the next Cadillac, you know, or whatever <laughs> product they were working on in their company. Uh, so it was, it was a great experience. Um, and actually, I think a lot of it has been incredibly applicable to my work uh, here. I'd love to talk more about that because I, I do think, you know, look, ultimately in the spirit of competition, people are considering buying a Tesla for certain reasons. And some of those same people are considering how much they should give to their alma mater this year. And we absolutely can learn from brand and uh, the storytelling and the aspirational nature of that and, and, and think about how can we apply that to make this 
either direct marketing, one to many appeal, or that individual video that you make uh, for a, a specific prospect more compelling. Um, I, I guess I'm curious. Let's just talk about marketing for for a second. There's there really is this one to many brand building or awareness building, and then it becomes more and more personalized. Oftentimes in the for-profit sector, as price point grows, you see the same thing with more stewardship and personalization as donation levels grow. I guess, does anything stand out either from the MBA program specifically, or as you've continued to just study for-profit marketing, where you say, wow, if Michigan or the Big Ten or higher ed could be more like X, it really would improve the donor experience, increase donor lifetime value, um, et cetera. What are some of the companies you think do a great job that we can learn from? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think, um, first of all, I would say that I took that kind of for-profit mindset and I absolutely brought it right back to my annual giving team. And it's changed the way that we do some of our annual planning in terms of thinking about donor personas and, you know, the kind of mapping out um, how the actions we want our messaging to take and really thinking about kind of the voice and the niche and all of that. So I think it's, it's incredibly relevant and very translatable. Um, right now, and, and again, this might, well, this might be my bias because I'm also responsible right now at looking at how Michigan builds out and improves our donor digital experience. Um, right now, I think the biggest thing is that personalization and companies are so good at it and higher ed development and actually most of development is just not as good at it. Um, and so thinking about how do we use, um, you know, whether it's marketing journeys or just even customization and personalization and email campaigns or in ads that we're surfacing or any of that to really have the donor feel like we know who they are. Um, and of course, there's, you know, some of the giants do that really well, right? Amazon, even for all of the controversy potentially around it, um, it knows what to recommend to you. It knows what you think you might want to buy and, and it surfaces that for you. Uh, a lot of other companies uh, do a great job of doing that too and providing marketing that really speaks to you. And that's our ultimate goal. That's kind of what we want to get to is how do we get to a place where potentially without the donor even really being cognizant of it, we're sending them our leaders and best newsletter, which is our kind of philanthropic updates. Um, and all of the stories in it are really interesting to the donor and really relevant. And they think that everything happening at Michigan is completely in their interest zone, right? Um, even though in all reality, we might be surfacing completely different stories for somebody else. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity. Uh, it takes a lot of digital capability um, and some resource, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to um, just have that experience feel so much more personal for our donors, even on a mass scale, um, than we do now. And you've talked about the marketing journey and, and the importance of personalization, but the typical sales funnel has a marketing funnel, which leads to a sales funnel, which then leads to a customer lifecycle funnel. And we talk a lot about the idea of a giving funnel in this sector. And one of the areas that I actually see as a, a massive opportunity is as we get better at the marketing journeys and better at the digital engagement and storytelling, how do we also get better at that handoff to sales, right? How do we start to say, hey, look, 100,000 people are engaged with this content in general, 5,000 with this specific area of interest, and of those, 
50 are super high net worth unassigned prospects that we need a human being to have a conversation with because they might convert for a $500 giving day gift, but we're never going to get them to 50 or 500,000 without authentic human relationship building. And like, what's your perspective on that? Is that happening yet? Do you see the opportunity there? Cause it's really that handoff from marketing to sales or engagement to fundraising that, that I just think is still wide open in this space. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Um, that is, that's, that's the ultimate goal, right? I mean, it's great to engage everybody and have them roped in, but at the end of the day, we are fundraisers and we are tasked with raising um, money to support the mission of our institution. So uh, we have to figure out how to convert interest and engagement into donations and increasing donations for at least some, some subset of that population. Uh, so I think there's tremendous opportunity there. I think that there, as an industry, I think we're starting to kind of tap around the edges of that, but I don't think we're there yet. Um, I see a lot more leadership annual giving programs. I see a lot more digital uh, gift officer type of positions and, and things that I think are trying to kind of plug those holes in the pipeline, as I like to say with my prospect development colleagues. We have a really robust pipeline at Michigan, um, but it has holes in it. And so we lose people uh, when they kind of fall into these gaps. And I think that that's really the challenge is to think about how do we shore up every point that we uh, could lose somebody and or that we're not taking an opportunity to upgrade them. So I know we're looking at and thinking about in conjunction with our uh, prospect development team and analytics team is how do we, like, what are the triggers in our system where our donor behavior is kind of raising a flag for us that we need to be paying attention to that says, hey, I'm here, like, I want to talk to somebody, or I need more engagement in some way. Maybe it's inviting them to events first. Maybe it's, you know, but, but what are those triggers and, and what trends do we see in the data so that we can yes. start to have that proactive kind of flag go up literally in our database, ideally, um, that says, hey, these are the people who now need to get invited to this event, or these are the people who need to be invited to these virtual conversations with the president and the provost, or whatever that is. These are the people who need to go straight to a major gift officer. These are the ones who need to go to a, a leadership annual giving officer, um, so that that is all just much more automated and, and, yes. and cohesive. You're making me think of, so a couple of, a couple of points. One, We've got a few colleagues at Evertrue who used to work at a company called Session M, which is this loyalty engine. So uh, apps like the Starbucks app would use this system as a backend to basically scan transactional engagement data from the consumer and then make personalized recommendations so that on a hot day, you're going to get a certain offer based on your past um, behavior. And I think it's that idea, they, call, they called it a, a rules-based uh, engine, right? And so it's just this idea that we have too much data to be able to surface through it one by one. And I think oftentimes in the advancement sector, it's just run another spreadsheet and start digging through pro profiles manually, which even at your scale at Michigan is not possible. How do we start having a rules-based engine? And one of the areas we've been researching recently is just this idea of giving days. And we're in October of 2020. We're starting to see giving days come back. Folks that maybe had canceled their giving days around COVID in the spring, and how do you make that as one of those um, just sources of data that can really accelerate a donor journey? And so if a thousand people or 10,000 people give on giving day, 50 of those people or 500 of those people 
are high net worth unassigned prospects that made their first gift ever. How do we make sure that their experience is different than just everyone else's experience? And I don't want to keep making it about just, it's all about net worth or it's all about wealth, but let's be honest, we have limited resources. And if we're going to choose who to really go above and beyond to steward in pursuit of our mission, how do we start thinking of giving days, not just as participation, but really as a pipeline generator, as a qualifier for the major gift cycle that should commence the next day. Uh, and I think that's an area that, that, you know, I'm really, really excited about, curious to get your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you are exactly right. And I would add that it's not even, um, I don't even think it's as simple as kind of people at a certain high net net worth, I think we eventually we need to get more nuanced too, and be looking at their stage of life as well. Like we're, we have some recent grads, for instance, or even some students who engage in our giving day, who maybe today aren't worth as much as what we would consider a major gift prospect, but they are showing behavior and trends that shows an unbelievable commitment and dedication to our organization, that we would be foolish not to keep engaged and engage at a higher level than we're engaging with all of our recent alums, for instance. Um, so I think, I think it's figuring out all of those different variables and then saying, okay, here's the group. And if we, you know, maybe there's what we're calling next gen donors, which are kind of your forties and fifties ish. So, so beyond the recent grads, um, but how do we get them in the same room with our really high level principal gift donors early so that they start to aspire to that and they start to see themselves as being that that's a possibility right um i would say the same thing with your 20 and 30 year olds how do you get them in a room with the right people to start setting aspirational uh kind of goals for how they want to have an impact at the university of michigan um so i but yes giving days it brings so many people in um and we need to do a really good job of figuring out kind of where those diamonds are uh, in the data. Treat everyone well and make sure that everyone feels good about their gift because you never know when someone's just making a little test gift out there. Um, but really accelerate that kind of stewardship and engagement for, for certain populations, so. So tell me a little bit about, you've mentioned that you're in this sort of centralized area in a decentralized context. What is a day in the life today? What are you focused on for fiscal 21 and beyond? Um, what are you excited about? What are you nervous about? Oh, it's a great question. So, I mean, like everyone, uh, I think there's so much uncertainty right now and so much unknown. Um, we are cautiously optimistic, I guess I would say, moving forward with all of our fiscal year 21 plans. Um, we had already planned on moving our giving day from giving Tuesday to the spring this year. So, in some ways, that's great that that was already planned. In other ways, it's adding to the sort of uncertainty of our fall because we already knew we were moving one of our really, really big efforts um, to the spring. So we're trying to figure out what fills that gap and how we don't leave the Giving Tuesday space entirely, um, but also participate in a way that does not strain our resources uh, to the same extent that our Giving Day does because we need that for the spring. Um, we are really working closely with or trying to work really closely with peers across campus um, to get a good sense of what they need in all of their schools and colleges right now. Um, I think like many places, uh, hope probably many places in higher ed, 
a lot of deans don't have a focus on development right now and and they shouldn't right they're trying to get students back safely now students are here they're trying to figure out what that looks like what that looks like for winter um so a lot of our development colleagues across campus are facing challenges with knowing exactly what their priorities are from the dean right now or access to leadership um obviously so many of them that are frontline gift officers are dealing with the additional challenges of not being able to travel. Um, so from our team standpoint and everyone in the Office of University Development, it's really trying to figure out how do we best support all of these schools and colleges, but also meet them where they are to the best of our ability. Um, and knowing that they're all in a little bit of a different place, philosophically, resource-wise, um, and everything else, so. Can I also ask, I'm just, and you don't have to comment too much if, if you're not able, but uh, football is important at Michigan. Football is important in the Big Ten. And football is important to a lot of your constituents. It's not the only reason people give by any means. But what has it been like as a staff member just dealing with the sort of, um, just the arc of Big Ten football? And it is important enough that it must somewhat govern how you reach out to donors or maybe it governs donor response. I mean, what has that been like relative to every other year you've been, you know, in, in the, in the big 10, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the most noticeable differences obviously is just that we don't have people coming back to campus for football. Um, and I think that when you've been in the big 10, as long as I have and at Michigan where football is very important, um, you start to take for granted all of those engagement touch points that you get in the fall people come back to campus for games. They just do. So we've got suites, we have, you know, tailgates, we have presidential dinners, we have people on campus where you can have coffee or meet. Uh, all of that that naturally occurs in the fall is gone, um, as well as homecoming and reunions and all of that, at least in an in-person sense. Uh, so that is really a challenge for a lot of us to figure out how do we reinvent enough engagement opportunities <laughs> to try to fill that Void. Um, so that's one thing I would say that is a, a definite impact we're seeing. Uh, the other is, like everything in the world right now, is just this extreme polarization, I think, of everything. So uh, we did a campus reactivation campaign, mostly digital, over kind of the July-August timeframe. Um, and so many responses that came back from that around football, so many responses about reopening campus. Um, but it was interesting, it, it really helped to highlight too that we cannot make everyone happy. We had just as many people saying we should be playing football as we had people saying, I'm so glad you're not playing football. Now that that tide has turned, we have people saying, I can't believe you're bringing football back and another whole group celebrating. <laughs> So it's I, probably I, a little bit reminiscent of your MBA days where people read the same case, look at the exact same data and come up with the exact opposite conclusions. So, uh, yeah, no ab stranger ab to that, I'm absolutely, sure. absolutely. Um, so, you know, we do the best that we can and we know that some of our alumni feel really strongly one way or the other. And at the end of the day, it's nice to be able to say, you know, development doesn't actually have any say in that decision. <laughs> Um, we, we certainly benefit from all the events and such around athletics, but we are distanced as well, which is helpful. So let's just talk a little bit about this. Um, 
whether it's football games and tailgates at Michigan or other great uh, reunion experiences or offline event experiences that have all been tabled for the foreseeable future, that has also been an opportunity, like you said, to reinvent. And inertia is powerful. And it would have been easy just to keep doing the same tailgate forever. And I cannot wait to go to a tailgate at a Big Ten game again someday. But it has been a, a catalyst for innovation. Have you been able to deliver any donor experiences that, frankly, you just probably wouldn't have thought of or uh, uh, attempted if it weren't for the current state of affairs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like everyone else, we've shifted um, strongly to virtual events and thinking about how we provide these opportunities. Uh, and I think pretty universally, I would say across campus, we're actually seeing uh, that at like board meetings, for instance, we're getting better attendance than we ever have when they're in person. Um, and that we're reaching much broader audiences and more diverse audiences. So I think that's one of the things we're really excited about is making sure that even when we can go back to in-person events, that we maintain some elements of these virtual, um, we're doing a, a whole series of kind of virtual lectures on different topics and themes. Um, lectures might be too big of a word, talks. It's faculty members, but they're more of a talk. They're very much geared toward uh, kind of layman's interest around various topics. And uh, the interest that we've gotten in those and just the reach has been astounding, honestly. Um, and it's so exciting to be able to include more people, whether it's geographically or giving level or whatever. We just, it opens new doors for us, which is great. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody's a Zoom link away and there are certain aspects of that that are not as good, but there are others like reach and access that are better. I think back, I was a young alumni uh, coordinator of the Brown Club of Chicago when I graduated. And I remember one time we hosted the head football coach and the head of the sports foundation at the, um, at the university club in Chicago. And it was such a big deal because it had been so long since we'd done an event like that. And it was so fun but it took so much time and coordination and traffic navigating and you name it. And now we're starting to do monthly uh, Zoom calls with the head football coach. And, you know, Brown football is not exactly Michigan football, but it's just it's been amazing very close, to see. very close. Very close. You know, same, same concept, um, same rules at least. But, um, but, you know, it has been really neat to see, uh, to your point, donors who couldn't engage or just wasn't practical – now can engage and equally important it's way easier for the coach than asking him to fly around city to city to do these small group gatherings he can sit at his desk do the zoom call and then get on recruiting calls a minute later and so i feel like we're just starting to see ways that we can um reinvent some of this in a way that is not only kind of well we have to do it online now but guess what it's actually better for everyone because it's online in certain uh, circumstances Yep, absolutely. It's been, it's actually been great. I mean, I attended last week, I attended Northwestern's leadership symposium, they call it, which is for volunteers. Uh, and it was amazing, right? I didn't have to take two days off of work. I attended as many sessions as I could, but I had work meetings before and after. I was playing with my toddler two minutes after I got off the last one for the day. Um, and that wouldn't have been possible if I'd had to drive to Chicago and um, be on campus, which would have been great. Uh, but I probably wouldn't have gone, to be honest, because it just isn't feasible right now at this point in my life. So, Megan, can I ask just shifting uh, topics a little bit? I want to be sensitive of time. But one of the recurring themes that we hear uh, with our guests is the importance of mentorship 
uh, when you think about advancing through your career and building uh, toward a leadership position, and then also uh, peers in the sector who you think highly of. I mean, who are some of the people that have helped you either as mentors or as peers? Absolutely. Well, I, I feel lucky in the sense that that first job back in Wisconsin, um, Gerald Panis and Lindsay was the company that uh, Peninsula Players had consulted with or hired to consult. Um, so Jerry Lindsay was my sort of very first development instructor or mentor, if you will, um, which is at the time, I didn't even know what that meant until I got later in my career and people were reading, you know, referencing his books all the time. Um, so that was great. My boss at Northwestern, Bridget Haggerty, uh, was hugely instrumental in kind of solidifying my interest in development and saying, yes, higher ed development is what I want to build a career in. Um, and then I can't even name all the people in Michigan, honestly. I've had so many uh, different colleagues and bosses who've been so helpful in helping me think about development differently, helping me think about the fact that I could build a career for myself in development and, and not have to be a kind of road warrior, right? Um, I've gotten to where I am without doing the traditional major gift officer on the road every day type of path. Um, and, and then all the peers across the country. I mean, I know in some of one of your other podcasts, you had Colin uh, on, I think, with Brittany. And it was fun to hear you talk about Fight Club. But certainly my colleagues in AGDC have been hugely influential to me over the last... Wait, you're years. in AGDC? You're in Fight <laughs> well, Club? So I was. I've handed it down to my director of annual giving now. Um, so Adam is, Adam is our representative. But yes, University of Michigan is. So... Uh, and, and it's just, it's an amazing opportunity to connect with peers and anywhere. I would say Big Ten 12 too. I love going to those conferences. Anytime that I get to uh, interact with other development colleagues and share, you mentioned it really early on, the collaborative nature of higher ed fundraising specifically. Um, it's just unmatched, I think. I think it's so incredible to be able to get together with people and share all of your successes and all of your failures, to learn from each other, to commiserate together, to celebrate together. Um, it's, it's a really, really cool industry. So I love it. Yeah, I, you know, look, I, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't somewhat enjoy the reprieve from all of the conferences that we've attended over the years, because it is just a lot of time on the road. But the ones that I miss the most, the Big Ten Development Conference, the Big 12 Development Conference, it's just an incredible um, experience and it's been a privilege to be a part of and I look forward to those uh, getting fired back up again, hopefully, uh, hopefully next year. Um, say someday, yep. Uh, someday, yeah. You know, can I just ask, like when you think about either AGDC, Big Ten, Big 12, um, you know, for folks who are listening that are earlier in their careers, um, any advice when you think about building your professional network in the sector? It is very collaborative, but at the same time, if you don't ask for the meeting or if you don't ask the, for the conversation, it's not magically going to happen. And so sometimes we, you know, get luck or uh, good fortune, but I don't know how, how disciplined are you, I guess, in trying to uh, build those relationships and then maintain them and, and you know, uh, any, any thoughts on that are welcome. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and it's harder, I would say, right now in the in the world of virtual conferences. Um, at least that's what I've been discovering in the last six or eight months is that the conferences are still extremely helpful virtually, but you lose that informal networking time. Um, so I think that's a little bit more challenging. But certainly, I mean, 
all of the standard kind of case conferences, academic impressions conferences. Um, if you're in annual giving, the Northeast Annual Giving Conference, there's all of these different learning opportunities. And if your institution will support you going to those, I, I would highly encourage everyone to take advantage of them. Um, that's where I really started to meet peers and, and make connections. And then I found that everyone in our field is just really willing and generous with their time. Um, so just like we, you know, we all ask people for money all the time. Don't be afraid to ask for a little bit of time uh, and to make a connection with somebody and learn more about their career path or just pick their brain about something you're interested in. Um, I find that everyone typically is very, very open to that. Um, so, so I encourage people to reach out. I think LinkedIn is a great way to stay connected with people. Uh, and then just having opportunities to touch base regularly. It's what I love about um, AGDC, but also our Big Ten 12 kind of benchmarking group, listservs, hot topics calls, any opportunity that you can to kind of get similar institutions together to troubleshoot or commiserate or celebrate is worthwhile. Love it. A uh, couple of uh, closing questions. One area that you think the advancement sector is over-investing in and one area where we're under-investing. Oh, so that's a tricky question. Um, I'll start with underinvesting because I actually think that's easier. Uh, and that's where I go to the digital. And it may just be Michigan, but I think it's a lot of the advancement sector. Uh, I think we need to be investing more in providing this kind of really easy access, personalized online experience. Um, or maybe not online, maybe it's apps or, you know, but some, I guess it's still kind of online. <laughs> um, these, these, digital and technological ways to interact with our donors. Um, Over-investing, I think, is a little bit trickier because I think that that actually has maybe changed pretty significantly in the last seven months. Um, I don't know if I would have answered this way before, but given just what we were talking about even with virtual events, I think we might be over-investing in large in-person events <laughs> um, and stewardship events and cultivation events. I don't know, I, we've, I never would have said this before probably, but I don't know if we need as many dinners and tailgates and places where we serve food and have parking and um, you know have a lot of event staff working. I think we still need to be doing events, but uh, just shifting some of those to virtual might save some money and get a lot of impact, so. Love it. Uh, I wanna conclude with asking you, and, and we had done a little bit of pre-call research here, but you shared a memory. We asked you what, what a memorable gift was that you've been a part of. And it was not the biggest gift that you've been a part of, but I think it's a really good concluding thought given everything you've shared. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a story that I love to share with my teams um, today too. So this is back again, back in my theater days. And uh, I actually would winter in Chicago and summer in Wisconsin for a while. So I was doing our annual appeal Literally, I just would in, like to say it's the it's the first time anyone's ever used the expression winter in Chicago, but keep going. Yes, I know. Um, but I would be doing our year end appeal, literally printing it in my apartment in Chicago and, you know, folding and stuffing and um, and then processing gifts. So I got to watch these kind of trends and I noticed it caught my eye the first year and then two years made it a trend. I noticed that we had this donor who would always give $99 and 64 cents or whatever the difference at that point was of $100 minus a first class stamp. 
Um, and I thought it, the first time I just thought this is weird. Like this dollar amount is very strange. And then I realized that it was $100 minus a first class stamp. Um, and so the next year, this would have been the third time that I processed his year end letter. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to throw a stamp on the reply envelope that I put in his mailing. It's not something we do for everybody, but I'll just do it. Uh, well, I was, I was expecting to get a $100 check back. That's what I was hoping was going to happen. Um, and instead, I got a $1,000 check back. And I thought, wow, all it took was paying attention to something that clearly was irritating to this person, that we didn't include a pre-stamped envelope, uh, for him to really feel uh, valued, heard, and give significantly more money to the organization. So I think it's a good lesson for all of us to listen very, very carefully to our donors and not just to what they say, uh, but what their actions are telling you as well. And I think the challenge for us as vendor partners in the community and for anybody in the technology space is how do we enable a 10x improvement in outcomes through scaling of personalization like being thoughtful about putting on a stamp. We have not figured that out yet. We're working really hard on it, uh, at it and we'll continue to do so. But I truly believe that there is an opportunity to 10x our results and maybe not at the top of the pyramid, but in, in almost every category of our donor population, if we can figure out a way to make people feel special. And uh, given the discretionary nature of this uh, sector, we, we need to make the case for the impact, but there is also just an element of making somebody feel good that inspires them to add another zero to their work, the same way you've added zeros to your work uh, over time. And so, Megan, thank you so much for giving us a window into one of the largest, most complex, highest impact fundraising uh, operations in the sector. Uh, if anybody wants to stay in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, probably LinkedIn, honestly. Uh, is, is, that's probably the easiest way to find me there and connect. So, Megan, thank you so much. All right. Best wishes for a great uh, fiscal 21 and beyond. Thank you. Same to you, Brett.